Welcome everyone to the games people play. Looking for a redirect, but loose in front of the goal. Does anything in particular stand out? Is there any? Running for the end zone for the touchdown. This is Bernie Corbett saying, play the game well. Welcome everyone to our latest edition of the games people play with Bernie Corbett. I remain Bernie Corbett, your host. A pleasure for everybody to join us this week. And, uh, well, we've had uh, some all-time greats. We've had some Hall of Famers. And uh, today is no exception. We've got somebody uh, that is uh, quite uh, possibly uh, at the pinnacle. I talk about someone at the top of the game. Uh, from the sport of racing, we have Hall of Famer Gary Stevens with us uh, today. And uh, we welcome uh, Gary in. And uh, his accolades are uh, the stuff of legend. Nine triple crown wins that are spread uh, very symmetrically across three in the Derby, three in the Preakness, three in the Belmont. Uh, win place and show, if you will, across the board with uh, the nine triple crown wins. Uh, ten wins at the Breeders' Cup Classic, nine Santa Anita Derbies, uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, two at the Travers, one of my favorite weekends of the summer. And uh, not surprisingly, U.S. Racing Hall of Famer, 1997, at age 34, the fourth youngest to be inducted. And he had plenty of racing uh, after that, as a matter of fact, which we're going to talk about. And uh, an astonishing 5,187 victories uh, during his illustrious career, over 5,000 in North America, added to that internationally. Uh, just uh, amazing that we have. I can say it as uh, many owners and trainers have said over the years with great confidence, we've got Gary Stevens aboard for the games people play today. Gary, welcome. Great to have you with us. Bernie, it's great to be added to uh, your your Hall of Fame list of uh, all the greats that you've had on your radio show. So I've, I've been looking forward to this. We tried it once, and we're getting it done today. Absolutely. We are getting it done, similar to you in, uh, in the, the focus of your career and getting it done. And, uh, Gary, as we always do here at the Games People Play, we, we talk about roots. So we talk about uh, the beginnings of our guest. Uh, you were born in Caldwell, Idaho, uh, the youngest of three. And uh, when you talk about the sport of racing, uh, I guess uh, maybe it was just in the DNA when you consider the fact that uh, your father was uh, a trainer and uh, a lifer. You had an uncle that was a jockey. And oh, by the way, your mother was uh, active in the rodeo as a barrel jumper. So uh, sometimes it's difficult to find out how people get to a certain point in their life. For you, I think there was a certain level of destiny. Absolutely, there was a certain level, and and let's straighten one thing out. She didn't jump barrels with horses. She she barrel raced. Uh, oh, there's barrel three race. barrels that are set up. Okay, and it's a timed event, and she was really good at it. So I'm sorry to step on you there, but I, I had to clarify that because if mom and dad listen to this interview, which I know they're going to, and and take great pleasure in it, thanks <laughs> yes. mom and dad for everything you did for me, but. Yeah, the youngest of three boys, uh, all of us very competitive, but very close. And we continue to be very close uh, uh, to this day. I've, I've actually, as we're talking right now, my, my middle brother, Scott, who's still active uh, riding, he's, he's nursing a, a broken hill right now, uh, about ready to come back riding. But I've got him upstairs uh, putting some hardwood flooring in as we speak right now. So he drove over from, from Phoenix, Arizona yesterday, but... Uh, Anyway, uh, yeah, just a tight, tight knit uh, group family, and and uh, you know, I all praise to uh, what my family did for me, just from humble beginnings. But I never thought I'd be uh, doing an interview like this when uh, Boise, Idaho, when I'm 16, 16 years old, and this career kicked off. 
Indeed, I'm glad you clarified that. I saw a barrel jump a rodeo queen, but uh, I'm glad it was. Uh, it was <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you clarified that. That's what it's all about. Do we want to get uh, get it all straight? And uh, and just uh, really a background that was uh, was so uh, steeped and immersed uh, in uh, the sport uh, it, that I guess there was really uh, a, a direction that you had from a very early age. And uh, the, speaking of an early age, Gary. Uh, there were some obstacles to, that you had to overcome from a physical standpoint. Case in point, at age seven, uh, there was a, uh, a hip, uh, a degenerative hip uh, situation that you had that you had to deal with uh, over almost a two-year period. Yeah, the, it's called the uh, leg perthes disease, and uh, it was a degenerative uh, disease, and it still happens today to uh, young children. And fortunately for me, I was diagnosed uh, at a young age, and I was putting a, a full leg uh, brace with big old shoe on, on my left left foot to equal out uh, the weight that was being kept off of my right leg for 18 months. And um, it made me tough. Uh, I had two big brothers that looked after me, but uh, I was called uh, from Ironside to Frankenstein and, and different things. And uh, I learned to fight because of that. My brother said, don't take any uh, crap from anybody. And and um, I learned how to ride a bike and so on and so forth and, and uh, got involved with uh, drumming. Um, I was, when I say drumming, uh, I, I, mom and dad got me involved with taking private drum lessons. Uh, I was a pretty hyperactive kid and uh, I didn't let the brace slow me down. I'll just tell you that. And I was 18 months in that thing and, and it toughened me up. Indeed, indeed, the case. Uh, actually, you began riding assisted by your mother at the age of three, uh, overcame uh, the, uh, the uh, hip injury, the, the, the hip condition that you had, uh, but uh, was around the track uh, with your dad from an early age. And I guess everybody pretty much starts mucking stalls. You're in uh, uh, the back of the track, as it were. You were no exception. And by about the age of 12, you decided to become a jockey, a very strong influence of your older brother. Yeah, I uh, just want to follow. He he was my idol when I was a kid, and he continues to be an idol uh, of mine. Uh, great eth work ethic, and um, he started riding when he was uh, 14 years of age. Uh, lied about his age and got his his license, and and uh, I was not allowed to do that because uh, he later on had a, a girlfriend that uh, turned him into the Calif or the uh, Idaho Racing Board. Um, and my mom had fudged on his birth certificate, and they got some trouble over that. And, and so I had to wait till I was 16 to uh, start riding professionally legally. Uh, I did go to, uh, to Utah when I was 14 and, and rode in some, some uh, races there. Uh, but I was 16 when I started uh, professionally. So, um, yeah, just, I mean, it, it's always been in my blood. Indeed. Also, uh you were pretty accomplished as a high school wrestler. You had some uh, college uh, scholarship offers so that you could have maybe uh, wrestled on the collegiate level. Yeah, Nebraska, Oklahoma State, uh, some some great uh, big collegiate programs. wrestling yeah. schools. Yeah, big programs. And um, listen, when I was when I was a junior in in high school, I'd gone undefeated. I was uh, number one seed uh, in the district uh, tournament to decide the top four finishers going to state and uh, I wound up uh, I got beat by uh, my JV guy that had challenged me every single week all season long and he had some 
he had some secrets up his sleeve that day we met on the bat and he he beat me uh in that match and it put me into uh consolation round and uh i was getting my butt kicked in in that match as well i just uh, i didn't show up on the day and uh for whatever reason and then I, I dislocated my my shoulder with about 30 seconds left in the match and and like i said i was getting my butt kicked anyway and um i'd had a a uh, opportunity to come to southern california and, and uh, go to work for the great chuck telefero who had started out stevie coffin and who wound up for the people that don't know out there listening uh won the triple crown won the triple crown on a firm for lazaro barrera in uh 77 and um you know in uh, also cash ashmussen who won uh i believe uh 12 uh, prince riding championships and and won every Eng uh, english irish uh classic that there that there was and french classics and um anyhow i got that opportunity to come to southern california when i was 16 years old and mom and dad didn't want to let me uh come down and and uh Scott, my older brother, encouraged mom and dad to let me come down. And and so I, I got to ride with the likes of Bill Shoemaker, uh, Lafitte Pinkai, uh, Chris McCarron, Daryl McCarg. I mean, the list goes on and on. Fernando Toro and, and uh, really learned some, some skills I'd never seen uh, before and experience. And, and uh, they all treated me great. I was 17 years old, and uh, that stuck with me. And I got homesick went back to Idaho and I was able to uh, practice those skills I had learned by riding many, many races. Uh, there's nothing like uh, experiencing on-job um, training, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, in, from Boise, I went to Portland Meadows, from Portland Meadows to the old Long Acres race course up in Seattle, from there to San Francisco and from San Francisco to uh, Los Angeles to the big time and from there you know back and forth trips to New York and throughout the, the United States and then uh, Japan Cups and, and racing in Ireland England uh, France and uh, horses have taken me everywhere man indeed some of those stops along the way you mentioned Utah they called the uh, the bush tracks and and the quarter horses and at one time uh, it uh, pH became V you did change your name to Gary Stevens, <laughs> uh, I noted. Uh, a few little uh, adjustments that were made uh, in order to, uh, to get up and, and be riding. And uh, a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, horses uh, that, that, that uh, would resonate back to the beginning of your career, uh, I know uh, that uh, for, forever will be uh, indelibly etched in your mind. Sweet Dancing April, uh, back to March of 1979, Gary, when I yeah. mentioned that horse. Yeah, Sweet Dance in April, uh, uh, a gray filly, uh, my first ride ever uh, mm -hmm. in any sort of legal uh, horse legally. race. I'll, <laughs> I'll just say it that way. Legally, uh, I, was, I was legally licensed at 16, uh, and uh, I, I just turned 16, and she was a fast filly. And um, anyway, yeah, I climbed aboard that first one and, and uh, fortunately got the win on her. Uh, it was fraternity trials, uh, it, but it was in Emmett, Idaho. And mm -hmm. there was a rodeo arena in the infield, and it was it was Western. Uh, and it, it's uh, I don't even know if it's still there or not. Uh, I I would probably say that it's been developed with all the people that are moving to to Idaho now from uh, Southern California. Uh, I'd like to be one of them, if I mm -hmm. might say. But 
um, anyhow, <laughs> right. it, it, yep. it was a cool, cool little place, and and it was it was country. But uh, yeah, that was the first win, the first legal win, first legal win. And uh, another horse uh, going back uh, to the distant past, Golden Ribbon, a, a horse that inspired you. Yeah, I was 14 years old, and and uh, you know I I wanted to. I was actually 12 years old. Uh, I wanted to gallop a, a racehorse, and and Scott, uh, Dad said, "No, you're not ready. You're not ready." And and Scott said, "I put him on Golden Ribbon," and he was an old uh, old class horse. Uh, and Scott told Dad, "He'll he'll get the feel of what a racehorse feels like versus a saddle horse uh, when he gets on Golden Ribbon." And he said, "Look, Golden Ribbon's going to look after him. Uh, Gary doesn't have to do anything." And, and Scott told me just. Uh, get tied on to him and he's going to take care of you. And I'd never felt the, the strength and power and speed uh, of what a, what a thoroughbred uh, feels like. I'd only ever been on quarter horses up to that point. And um, from that day, I, I was hooked and I knew what I wanted to do. With all of your uh, your racing awards, the George Wolf Memorial Jockey Award, the Eclipse Award is the Outstanding U.S. Jockey, the Mike Venetia Memorial Award for Extraordinary Sportsmanship and Citizenship. Uh, my sources tell me your prized possession, all the way back to Le Bois Park, a belt buckle that you received uh, for your time at Le Bois Park is something that I, that I believe my sources tell me you still treasure today with all the other accolades. It- <laughs> it is treasured. It's uh, it was for leading the apprentice uh, jockey at the 1979 um, Lebois Park meeting. My brother was leading leading jockey. Uh, I couldn't beat him uh, as leading jockey, and uh, but I I was the the champion uh, apprentice jockey uh, that season, and I've uh, still got the belt buckle today, along with uh, a buckle that that. Uh, Angie, my wife, had made for me after I, I finally won my Breeders' Cup Classic uh, in 2013 on Mucho Macho Man. And uh, though I, I would say those are my the, the beginning and the end of my career, of, of those two belt buckles. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The alpha, the alpha and the Omega, as we say, from the beginning to the end, indeed. And uh, you mentioned about California and homesick. Uh, your dad was maybe not uh, quite as accepting of... Uh, Dad, I want to come home. I'm homesick. And he laid, it, laid the law down for you. You can't come home until you win. And you went out and had a pretty good day and made sure that you secured uh, safe passage back to Idaho. <laughs> yeah, gosh. I, I'd, been, I'd been here in Southern California for three months. I was staying in a Motel 6 and I'd actually finally just got my first apartment. Now, I'm only 17 years old, but um, I kept running second. I had like... Uh, 27 seconds and no wins and uh dad told me he says you're not coming home till you win a race and uh i wound up picking a horse up uh in the uh, in the jockey's room uh when when a rider had fallen and and needed a replacement jockey and uh trainer larry sterling he said put stevens on as it won a race and uh they waived the apprentice allowance and and put me on and and actually i got my first win and uh, then I won two the next day, and I loaded up my uh, my Pontiac Trans Am uh, and, and in the middle of the night, and I was home by dinner time uh, the following following afternoon in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, uh, as you mentioned, uh, full circle and uh, back 
you really went to the jockey school, as you mentioned, with Pinkay and Shoemaker and so forth. And uh, really, your, your rise to prominence uh, was uh, really tied in, uh, obviously, locked in with Los Angeles and Southern California and, and uh, establishing yourself there. And uh, then, uh, of course, uh, the pinnacle of the game is the opportunity to ride and uh, to have uh, the experience that is, as you can see, the spires behind me here of Churchill Downs. 1985, I believe, your first opportunity uh, to race in the Derby. And uh, we look back now, your first win with uh, winning colors, 1988. And just to, to give us the perspective of what that felt like and, and uh, what that meant to you as a, uh, a young jockey who, uh, who was really at, at the beginning of, of your, great, uh, your great success, the arc of your success. Well, actually, I, I rode my first Kentucky Derby in 1985 on a horse named Pink's Prospects for the great uh, Eugene Klein and uh, the owner of San Diego Chargers, Chargers amongst yep. other uh, mm-hmm. great things, uh, and trained by legendary uh, D. Wayne Lucas. And, um, man, I couldn't believe I was riding in the Derby. And uh, I was excited. It was great. Uh, I thought I could win it. Uh, unfortunately, I, I finished fifth that day as either favorite or second favorite. And I was flying home, and I said, you know, this was this was great that I rode in the Derby, but I want to win this thing. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it was fun to ride it, but riding it's not good enough. He, I need to win one of these things. And three years later, uh, this brilliant filly comes along winning colors. And I'd won the Santa Anita Derby on her. She beat the boys, and, and she didn't just beat them. She beat up on them. And um, I knew I was going into the Derby with a with a great chance. And uh, I rode that 85 Derby. Derby. I rode that 86, 87. And, and my mom and dad, they came for the 85 Derby, and they said, we're never, ever coming into this thing again. It was great, but uh, we're stuck down there at the 7th furlong or at the 7-8th pole, and and mom was standing all day long and her feet are swollen up. And so after I won the Santa Anita Derby uh, on her, I, uh, I went home and I called him on the phone, the home phone, not sales back in those days. And yep. Not too many I options. Said, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I said, listen, guys, you, uh, I've got your plane reservations and, and you need to uh, come to this Derby. Hmm. Um, we're going to win it. So, uh, they were there and it was, it was all worth it. It was cool. Really, really special for you. You mentioned, I believe 85 was tanks prospect was your, was your first Derby horse, Gary, the first time. That's correct. Tank tanks prospect. Yep. Tanks prospect. And then, and then, uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, when, when, uh, when she came along, it uh, it changed my career, and D. Wayne Lucas cha- uh, changed my career. So um, we continue to have a relationship, and still uh, to this day. Uh, by the way, Wayne Wayne had COVID uh, earlier this year, mm. and he beat that. He's <laughs> he's one of the toughest men uh, of all time that I've ever met. He's the kind of guy that could scare COVID. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Exactly. With, with his reputation. He's, yep. He's he's probably uh, the biggest motivator uh, that that I've ever met in my life, um, mm. and just a presence about him, like um, 
no other human being I've I've ever been around and and taught me a lot about uh, life's journeys and and uh, racing itself and and how to treat people. Class act. And uh, you were able to beat back the challenge of 49er on the Philly winning colors. That was your first Derby win in 88. 1995, your second Derby win came close to, uh, to not happening, that you, you weren't going to be able to mount in the Derby. You were actually uh, in distant Hong Kong at the time. And, uh, well, you know, once again, karma, fate, it was probably a pretty good move that you came back and had a chance to uh, spend some time with Thunder Gulch in 1995. Yeah, I mean, I rode him as a two-year-old uh, by accident, really. I won the Remsen Stakes on him as a two-year-old, and, and Thunder Gulch was just a big playboy. I mean, it was all a game to him. Uh, he he wasn't a very big horse, but he was built like a bulldog. And um, I had actually flown home from uh, Hong Kong um, to ride in the Santa Anita Derby on a horse called uh, Larry the Legend. Uh, for Craig Lewis, and, and he won the Santa Anita Derby, and uh, he beat what was considered the favorite to, at that time for the Kentucky Derby in a horse named uh, Soul of the Matter, and I believe it was Soul of the Matter, uh, owned by Burt Bacharach, and um, I flew back to Hong Kong after winning the race, and Ron Anderson, um, legendary uh, jockey agent, uh, he he was staying with me over there in Hong Kong and uh, he picked me up at the airport and man, he should have been happy. We just won uh, the million dollar Santa Anita Derby and, and he looked like somebody had just kicked his little red wagon in, in a <laughs> ditch or something. And I'm like, what's going on, man? And he said, Larry, Led Larry the legend got hurt. It's like a 17 hour flight uh, uh, total time flying to Hong Kong from the United States back in the day. And, and uh, so he had got information while I was in the air uh, that he wasn't going to make the Kentucky Derby. And um, I said, ah, he said, but Wayne Lucas already called and he wants you to ride Thunder Gulch in the, in the Kentucky Derby. And he had just been beaten in the bluegrass stakes with Pat Day on his back. And, and that was the first time he'd been beaten uh, since winning the Remsen, he won the Fountain of Youth. He won. He won everything. He won the Florida Derby, and Mike Smith had been riding him. And uh, Mike had already made a commitment to ride a horse named Talking Man. Um, and uh, so I said, No, I don't want to go ride that horse. I said he wins every race by a nose, and, and he, he just got beat. He finished fourth as the heavy favorite in the Bluegrass. Pat Day was on him, and I said, Wasting my time. I've flown too many times back and forth. I just want to, I just want to stay here and ride. And, um, so Wayne kept calling, kept calling and, and talked to me and, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take the calls. I, I said, you talk to him. I said, I'm not going. I'm then I got a phone call from Mike Smith and Mike said, Mike and I are, are very close. Uh, he's, he's like family to my whole family. And, uh, even, back in 1995 and he said listen to me Gary he said you need to come and ride this horse uh he said I don't know why he got beat in the bluegrass because I wasn't on him but trust me Gary he said if he shows up his best race like he did in the Florida Derby he said you got a shot of winning the Derby hmm. I said all right good enough for me <laughs> and the rest is history so hmm. so uh Mike Smith uh he was he was uh 
I'd like to give him credit for him and, and Ron Anderson and uh, Wayne Lucas for their persistence of, of me uh, coming back. And, and from from winning that, it, it formed a long relationship with uh, cool, Coolmore, uh, John Magner, uh, Derek Smith, and Michael Tabor uh, from then on. And, and we, we went on and won a lot of big races together because of uh, that uh, formation of a, a partnership from then on. Also get your first Belmont with uh, with the Thunder Gulch, nineteen ninety five. Yeah, it, you know a lot of people uh, they talk about horses that could have won the Triple Crown. Well, mm. A lot of people forget that that uh, I was only beaten or we were only beaten uh, three quarters of length in in the Preakness Stakes. We were three quarters of a length away from winning the the uh, the Triple Crown. Triple Crown that year. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, finishing third in in the uh, Preakness Stakes, uh, so uh, coulda, shoulda, woulda. Uh, he went on and and uh, was never beaten again in his three-year-old year until his final race uh, and against the mighty Holy Bull uh, beat us, and and that was his last race of his career. But he went on to have a, a fine uh, stallion career and and uh, bred some. Very, very good uh, fillies that went on to be great broodmares, and and you still see his uh, his stallion lines going through a lot of these horses that are, are have turned into uh, great horses as well. And then uh, there was the uh, really remarkable symmetry, Gary, of 1997 and 1998, as our mutual friend and handicapper Pete Fornital describes it. He said you went from wearing the white hat to the black hat during those two Triple Crown seasons. And, of course, so we're referring to, referring to 1997 and uh, chased a very fast pace in the Derby on uh, one of the all-time great horses, uh, Silver Chan, which you also took to, uh, to victory at Pimlico uh, en route to a, another possible Triple Crown. Yeah, and it was, it was uh, kind of ironic that uh, the horse that beat me uh, under a great ride from uh, one of my great friends and fellow Hall of Famer, Chris McCarron, Riding a horse named Touch Gold, um, I felt like uh, all these different emotions in the last sixteenth of a mile. I, I made the lead earlier than I wanted to. Uh, I was uh, following Freehouse, and and I thought Freehouse would would carry me further uh, into the stretch than what he did. Um, and I found myself on the lead too early. And, and Silver Charm was the type of force that if he didn't have a horse that was making him compete, he didn't compete. He just kind of, uh, job's over with, I'm done. There's no target for me to eat, uh, no lunch to eat here. Uh, I, the game's over. And that stretch at, at Belmont can become very loud with, uh, you know, 80,000 screaming people. And, and it's very easy for a horse to get sidetracked. And, um, Man, I I knew everybody behind me was pretty much done. I, I actually, I'd passed uh, Touch Gold midway down the back stretch, and I said, well, there's one down I don't have to worry about, and there's my target, the Gray Horse, uh, uh, Freehouse, and Kent DeSormo, and uh, all of a sudden, Freehouse stopped, and I find myself in front, and he started pulling up. And McCarran, he had ridden Silver Charm, and he knew that if he saw a horse or felt a horse coming up on him, he would, you, couldn't, you could not get by him. And at that time of the afternoon at Belmont Park, uh, the first week of uh, June, uh, the sun is setting a certain way 
that through the stretch, uh, a shadow, you, you can see a shadow coming before you can see a horse. Hmm. And I saw this shadow. I, I, at the 16th pole, I said, well, we got, we finally got another triple crown winner. <laughs> We're finally going to get it. Yep. And, and I'm riding the horse that, that's going to win the triple crown. And all of a sudden there's this shadow that, that, uh, actually passes me before, uh, before the horse was there. I saw the shadow. Silver Charm did not see the shadow. He needed to see the horse. McCarran had moved clear out in the middle of the racetrack. So Silver Charm would not get competitive. And uh, he nailed me, beat, beat us by like a neck. And when Silver Charm saw him at the finish line, he hit the gas pedal again and took off. And I'm like, really? Are you kidding? And uh, I, I hollered at, at CJ and, and uh, I said, congratulations, buddy. And I had ridden uh, touch gold in the Lexington stakes uh, the three weeks before the Kentucky Derby. It was actually two weeks before the Kentucky Derby in, in 1997. And I told Dave Hoffman, the trainer, uh, I said, listen, don't run this horse in the Derby. I've already got to ride Silver Charm. And he ran too hard today. And he's going to, the bounce theory, I said, he's, it, it, it'll be too much for him. I said, running back in the Preakness, if I don't win the Derby, uh, I'll ride him for you in the Preakness. And uh, he said, all right, sounds good. So he skipped the Derby and McCarran picked him up. He stumbled at the start of the race. I'm talking about touch gold. And uh, he, he probably, if he doesn't stumble and then he got shut off at the 316th pole, he probably would have won the Preakness too. But uh, I, I still kick myself today. I should have told David to go ahead and run him in the Derby. I can't ride him, but if he would have run him, I, he would have been tired <laughs> through all three triple crowns. So I feel like I kind of cost myself uh, uh, the triple crown by uh, giving advice. And But I take pride that uh, I always, always tried to look after the horse and I was always honest with the trainers I rode for and, and uh, always trying to get the best out of what was best uh, for the horse. And, uh, that sort of cost us a triple crown. I, I read where you, you've commented over the years that Silver Charm was your all-time favorite. That st still holds that Silver Charm is at the absolute the top of the the Gary Stevens Mount list. He and uh, Beholder's right in the paddock, right uh, in 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 my best horses and my my favorite horses in my mind. Uh, Silver Charm was just blue collar. When I worked him in the morning, you couldn't tell if you were on a $5,000 claimer or a horse that was a derby winner. I mean, he just, he was just ho-hum. Uh, All business. Yep. He was a man, he was, he was a man's man mm -hmm. and uh, would, would give me everything that he had inside of his body every time that, that they let him over there. Uh, after the Dubai World Cup in 1998, uh, it knocked him out for a while. It took him a while to get back to his best form, but uh, he he'd gained a reputation that he was un, unbeatable when he could see his competition, and and he really was his personality. Uh, he was just a cool dude. Um, <laughs> if he was a human, uh, he would be one of my buddies. If if he liked if he liked me, and I knew he did like me, uh, so it it was it was a fun time for me. So we're also going to have vote on the Gary Stevens list. Silver Chime, the horse you'd most likely to go have a beer with. Oh, absolutely, I would. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Without hesitation and probably probably more than one. Yeah, probably more than one, exactly. That would probably be a, a long session, if you will. 
And uh, once again, the, the role reversal is just, uh, to me, re remarkable from 1997 and denied the Triple Crown. And then 1998 on Victory Gallup, you've got an opportunity to, uh, to, to turn the table, uh, as, as it were, in the Belmont that year. Your, your memories of, uh, of that uh, uh, tumultuous day at Belmont Park in 1998. Well, I, uh, Alex Solis had actually ridden Victory Gallup in the Kentucky Derby, and he ran a hell of a race. And um, he came from well off of the pace that day, and and uh, he, you know, he didn't get up. And uh, I, I received a phone call from Elliot Walden, his trainer, who is now uh, basically runs Windstar Farm, uh, but he was he was an excellent trainer, and and he had called us up and, and asked if I'd take them out for the Preakness. He said he didn't like the way that Alex had ridden the horse, uh, that he wanted him closer to the pace. And he was very enthusiastic uh, about me uh, keeping the horse close to the pace. Um, so that was, that was our game plan going into the Preakness. And um, so I did that. I, I, I put the, uh, real quiet in my target uh, mm. in front of me and, and tried to stay close to him, which I did stay close to him. And uh, when, when real quiet made the lead inside the 16th pole, uh, he started looking at the crowd and he swapped into from his right lead, the correct lead into his left lead and threw his ears up. And he, he was, he was, he just kind of idled the last 16th of a mile and he still beat us. But, I came back after the race and I said, Elliot, listen, I said, I know you had a, a strategy and a plan and everything, but I said, trust me. I said, we can win the Belmont. Uh, but I need to let the horse drop back like Alex had him in the, in the Kentucky Derby. I said, if the Sormo moves early in, uh, in the Belmont, uh, from my experience the year before on silver charm with him, you know, pulling up and the big crowd and the noise, the noise of Belmont when there's a big crowd there, you can hear it on the racetrack. Uh, yeah. it, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's as loud as the Kentucky Derby is. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's this big open space. You, I mean, you've all been there, you've seen it, and, and it's this big open space, and, and horses get lost. <laughs> and I said, you know, if this horse makes the lead early in the, in the Belmont, I said, he's going to pull up. I said, so can I just let him drop back and run his race and, and we'll roll the dice and see what happens. Yeah, sure. Uh, your horse, here's the keys. Go, go drive the car. And, it, uh, it worked out. Uh, that's exactly what happened. And it was, it was bittersweet because I was actually, if I couldn't be the one to beat him, then I get, uh, to beat real quiet. Our sport needed the triple crown winner, man. And, and, uh, I was, I was silently uh, rooting for him. Um, I'm extremely close friends with Mike Pagram, um, you know, who owned him. And, and uh, actually, I'd ridden the day before the Belmont. And uh, I'd, taken a, I'd taken a cab uh, to the track that day. And uh, I went back in the barn area. And I was walking through the barn area. And this big white limousine came by the black window rolls down and, and it was Mike Pagram. And, uh, he says, hop in here, Jock. We were both staying at, all of us were staying at the garden city hotel. And, 
hop in here, Jock. And he had a cooler with some Coors lights in it. And, and uh, so I jump in with, with Mike and we get the ride back and uh, pull up in front of the Garden City Hotel. And, and I jumped out of the limousine. I think the Coors light can came out the side of it. And Elliot Walden, uh, he's standing there with uh, on crutches. He had his leg was in a cast. He had uh, broke his ankle in a, a pickup basketball game, like uh, <laughs> just a week before the Belmont Stakes. And I, he's standing in front. And he says, "And Pegram got out." And he goes, "Really, really, you, you?" And I said, "Don't worry about nothing." And he just had his face just dropped. He's like, "He's he rode here with the competition," <laughs> and uh, so it was. You know, I, anybody who watched that derby, uh, it was a head bobber, and, and I got lucky on the bob, and and uh, thank God I did, uh, because uh, I think they were going to disqualify real quiet if his number would have came up on the board. Hmm. Uh, fortunately, mine did, but he, he uh, Kenta Sormo, when he felt the pressure coming, he went left-handed on, on victory gallop, and, or excuse me, on real quiet came out and, and made some pretty serious contact with me inside the last hundred yards. And uh, the stewards actually said that they would have taken him down. And had that happened, Belmont might, might not be there right now. I think they would have yeah, burned the place down. That might have been the end of <laughs> Belmont Park. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That was uh, – and for full uh, disclosure, my, my sidebar here, Gary, is uh, victory gallop – uh, sired by Crypto Clearance, and uh, I happen to be uh, very good friends with Harry Tynowitz, whose dad, Phil, that was that Crypto Clearance was his horse, and uh, Harry and I just uh, both escaped our late, late 50s with a birthday this week that shall remain nameless, but that's Harry's family, Crypto Clearance, that was uh, the, uh, the sire of your great horse, Victory Gallops. I wanted to mention that. I'll be that, that small world, man, and, yeah. and uh, happy belated <laughs> birthday, and, and uh, Thank you. hey, 2020s. <laughs> 2020 is not over with, but you made it through another birthday. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think 60. I'm hoping it's the new 40, Gary. Let's hope so. You know, you're a couple years behind me. <laughs> That's right. Let, let's hope so. Let's let, hope let, so. Let's hope you took, took better care of your body than I have mine. <laughs> That's right. We haven't got anything on the medical side. But uh, the, uh, the, great, uh, the great run on Victory Gallop at uh, uh, one of the other uh, the horses that I know that uh, you know, near and dear to you, and I believe that you're referred to as maybe uh, the single best horse to not win a triple crown, a triple crown, and that was a point given. I know it was a very special horse in, yeah. in your in your history. Uh, he was he was a, a great horse. Uh, he was he was so big. He was massive, uh, but he was cat like. He he had this athleticism. Athleticism. He did things so easily. You know, I. Uh, as easy as he won all of his races that he won, I never, ever got to the bottom of uh, a point given. Hmm. Um, Derby day, you know, I blame myself for, for a lot of years, uh, you know, for chasing a hot pace. Uh, I didn't like the way that he warmed up that day. Uh, he didn't, he didn't feel like he usually felt. Um, he was sort of hesitant and, and didn't seem to be enjoying himself. He was handling the crowd fine. He was doing all of that stuff good, but I just didn't like what I was feeling underneath me. So um, when I made the mistake, when we left the gate, I popped him on the shoulder 
to get him into the race because I, I, he was giving me the sense that, that he wasn't going to be involved early. And I knew that I had to be, get position uh, with my draw. And when I, when I slapped him down the shoulder, leaving the starting gate, boom, I was off to the races and I couldn't slow him down. Um, I knew we were going entirely, entirely way too fast. And um, it was going to cost him uh, at the end of the race. And it did. And I never made that mistake on him again. Um, I, I, I trusted him, uh, of what a great horse he was. And, you know, from there he went on, he won the, won the half school, he won the Travers and every, and, and, uh, the rest is kind of history, but he was a horse that if he would have had, if he would have had, and I, I won't call it heart cause he did have heart, but if he would have had the same yeah. desire as the silver charm, he would have been the greatest horse that Goodbye. there has ever been. Hmm. Uh, that that's how good point given was. He was he was something else. And and when I say, I, I'll tell you a story about the Belmont. Um, you know, I on him, I turned into the stretch, and and I felt like I was getting eighty percent out of him. And I went left handed. I went right handed, and and he wouldn't accelerate. He was just kind of galloping along. And uh, you know, in New York and most of the East Coast tracks, you wear an arm number on, on your right shoulder. Um, out in California, the horse wears a head number. There, there's a number with your post position on the attached to the head stall. And uh, so I, I thought I heard, heard, I was having deja vu of uh, the 1997 uh, Belmont Stakes when Touch Gold came and got me. I, I thought I heard hoof steps. And, and uh, I heard, I swear I heard hoof steps. And, and uh, what it was, was my arm number had the, uh, the part that goes around your arm. Uh, there's, a, there's a big pin that goes uh, through the, the upper part of your shoulder and, and then a Velcro strap underneath. Well, the Velcro had come loose and it was flopping in the wind, making hoof beat sounds. And when I, I stood up at the finish line, I took a peek behind me and I was 13 links in front and I was so embarrassed. There's, I, I've got a, I've got a photo, uh, of me on him looking back with a, a look of shock and embarrassment on my face. Cause I had been riding so hard and believe me, that was 80% of what his ability was. That's how good he was. Wow. Ended up winning by 11 links. Uh, all 11 13 whatever Amazing. i know it was double figures <laughs> oh un unbelievable unbelievable for the once again you know oftentimes we talk about athletes we're talking about athletes the same way if you could combine the heart and the physical skill of certain athletes then you'd uh, you'd, you'd have something that would be uh, completely off the charts if you will uh, in, indeed w one, one other race moving from the triple crown that you know myself as uh, been a broadcaster i've been an author uh, appreciation of uh, some of the greats in sports writing. And uh, because of my, my interest over the past, I guess, almost 20 years now, much of it courtesy of Pete Fornatel, who got me into this, uh, immersed me into it, where I'm a regular at the Belmont and the Travers and Saratoga and so forth. But going back and reading uh, Sports Illustrated, some of the writings of William Knack, and one of William Knack's greatest pieces is about the 2000 Breeders' Cup mile and uh, just an amazing comeback that you authored in that race. 
Uh, it's been referred to the best eighth of a mile ever. Or we'll see if you agree with that as far as uh, how that race transpired. But uh, if anybody wants to read a great piece of journalism, read William Knack's account in Sports Illustrated of that Breeders' Cup mile. Now we go to Gary Stevens, who was aboard. And uh, tell us about uh, War Chant and, uh, and tell us about that uh, Breeders' Cup mile from, uh, from where you had a perspective on it. Well, it was, uh, there, there's a lot to, uh, to the story of War Chant and, and Neil Drysdale, the trainer. He was also the trainer of another pretty good horse, Fusiachi Pegasus. And they happened oh, to be yeah. three-year-olds in the same year. And Kent was riding uh, Fu Peg, and, and uh, he had also been riding uh, War Chant. And I'd retired uh, in 99, at the end of 1999. And, and uh, uh I got a phone call from Neil Drysdale and there were rumors that I was coming back and the rumors were true that I was coming back, but uh, I didn't know exactly how or what or how the, the whole thing was going to work out. And out of the blue, I get a phone call from Neil and he said, Gary, he says, I have a horse for you that is built specially for you. And he has never run on turf before, but we will win the Breeders' Cup mile with him. And I says, is that right, Neil? Who's that? And he says, his name is War Chant. I'd like you to come and sit on him. You must come out of retirement. And uh, I was already pretty fit. I, I knew I was coming back, and it was just when I was going to come back. And anyway, uh, he had me he had me come out and, and uh, work him on the turf one morning. He had never been on the turf before. And he gave me this incredible feel. And he says, am I right? Is he the right kind of, I said, yeah, you're right. You're, you're never wrong, Neil. And Neil <laughs> likes that when you tell him he's never wrong. Uh, great respect <laughs> for him. And, and uh, what a trainer. But he's, he's quirky. I'll just tell you that. And we've had a, a great relationship for a lot of years. And anyway, uh, uh, we came back and, and we won a, won a stakes race with him. And um, onto the Breeders' Cup, we went. and. Um, you know, I, he had this amazing closing kick. Like it, it would just set you back. It was like driving a Ferrari and, and uh, going from zero to 60 in, in 2.1 seconds. I mean, it just, you like literally sitting on him and the last eighth of a mile, you cut him loose. And it was, it was like riding a quarter horse out of the starting gate, the last eighth of a mile. So uh, I, I was a long ways back and, and uh, the, the turf was, it was perfect turf, but uh, I had to come wide, and I found a private place on that track that, uh, at Churchill Downs that uh, served me well throughout my career that day. I was forced about eight wide, and um, they they showed on uh, Wide World of Sports for for years. I believe it was Wide World of Sports of of. Uh, their horse racing commercials and stuff were all of uh, war chant. They had this uh, camera on a, uh, on a cable that, that moved with him as he was passing the horses. And it, it's amazing to watch, but to be on his back that day and feel what I felt, I'd never felt it before. And, and I never felt it again. Uh, it was, it was just a super special uh, performance that he put on that day. And I, by the way, that was actually the first time that I'd ever sat on a point given that day in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile as well. Wow. And uh, I ran second 
in the race and I came back and I told Bob, I said, uh, we might've got beat today, but I said, this horse will win the Santa Anita Derby, the Kentucky Derby and the Triple Crown next year. <laughs> I was almost right. <laughs> you were pretty close. So quick, it was a rather eventful day to have, uh, to be able to experience those two horses in the, in the same day. And uh, with uh, Mr. Drysdale there, as far as convincing, he didn't even need any cause lights. He didn't have to pull you into a limo and give you any cause lights to convince you. He sold you pretty quick. Yeah, he, he sold me real quick. Whenever, <laughs> whenever Neil would uh, yeah. uh, reach for my, my phone number, I always knew that he, oh, yeah. he served me pretty well. Uh, I, and and uh, with all of his horses, his owners and stuff, uh, he, he was a, another major contributor uh, to my success over the years, for sure. Made up the, uh, the five lengths, as we mentioned, Reed William Nack's account very quickly and uh, edge past uh, northeast bound uh, and by a slender neck, uh, the victory in that, in that Breeders' Cup. Uh, your experience extends internationally. Um, England was, was certainly a unique experience for you, and you got to work with um, a legendary trainer, uh, with Sir Michael Stout, obviously knighted Sir Michael Stout, uh, and that gave you an opportunity to uh, to actually, uh, on one occasion, I believe, at least one occasion, the unique experience for any jockey to uh, to get instructions from the Queen herself about how to go out and win the race. <laughs> Gary. Yeah, I rode. Uh, I was on a uh, colt named Blueprint uh, for the Queen at Royal Ascot, and she hadn't won a race. That it's the Royal Meeting meaning it's her meet. Uh, Winter Palace is right there, and she comes down in the, in the carriage every day, and, and uh, you know, quite an honor to uh, be able to ride for the queen. And uh, Michael Stout told me, he says, listen, there's protocol when you meet the queen. He said, whatever you do, don't touch her. He said, when she comes out, you, you tip your, your hat to her and bow. And I said, okay. No problem. So she was stood under a tree and uh, Michael was there and, and I walked up and um, I said, your Royal Highness, I said, so uh, pleased I can ride for you. And she, she put out her white gloved hand and I grabbed her hand and I, uh, with my right hand and I grabbed the bill of my uh, riding cap and I bowed to her. And she told, she said, look, and, uh, she said, I'd like you three or four lengths off of the pace and, and wait until the last uh, two furlongs until uh, you ask him to run. And that's where he should make his run. And I said, thank you. Thank you, ma'am. And uh, so Michael legged me up on blueprint. He said, for God's sakes, I told you don't touch her. Don't touch her. And I said, <laughs> I, he said, I told you don't touch her. And I said, that's nothing. And, and Michael and I are very close friends to this day. Uh, Michael and, and his partner, uh, Cora Pritchard Gordon, I must say, uh, she, uh, she passed away from a long uh, illness of cancer uh, here recently. And, and uh, I reached out and yeah, I was very close with Coral as well. But um, yeah, so we're walking out and I said, that's nothing. I said, if I win this race, I said, I'm going to kiss her on the cheek. Oh, well, anyway, I wind up winning the race, and we're walking back into the Royal Enclosure. He said, for God's sakes, don't kiss her. Please don't kiss her. And I said, no, I'm not going to kiss her. But anyway, um, that was, uh, it was a great experience riding over there. Um, some of, one of my biggest regrets, uh, and I shouldn't, 
say a regret, but I enjoyed uh, my time writing for uh, for Michael um, over there and the owners that, that I was writing for. I was writing for Lord Weinstock, the founder of GE, uh, the Aga Khan, uh, Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, you name it, I was writing for them. And, and it was a powerful stable, and it was probably the most coveted job uh, as a, uh, a jockey, a retained jockey in all of Europe. And um, I, I received a call um, after being over there for three months uh, from Richard Mohol, the uh, racing manager for uh, Prince Ahmed uh, bin Salman uh, of the Thoroughbred Corporation, requesting my services back in the United States. And I'll just say it was an offer I couldn't refuse. And, and Michael knew about it. And <laughs> Um, that I, I'd received that phone call and he knew I was leaving, but uh, we've continued to uh, be friends over the years and, and uh, it was just a, a great experience and, and made me a better uh, all-around jockey from, from my, my time that I spent that summer in, uh, in England. One, one other place that you spent time, be, before we go back across the pond of the United States, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Gary, totally <laughs> different level of recognition and celebrity. I, I thought when I was reading, I thought about the, uh, the magnitude of uh, the track and field athletes. They get on the uh, European circuit and, and they're treated like they're playing one of the major sports in the United States, which they don't get treated like in the United States on any kind of a professional track and field circuit. But that seemed to resonate with me with, uh, with what uh, the level of celebrity you attained in Hong Kong. Yeah. I, uh... I went over for for a private job during a, a difficult time in my life. Uh, I was I was going through a a brutal divorce with uh, with four young children and and um, lawyers and and just back and forth. And I got a phone call uh, asking if I would come over and be a private uh, jockey uh, for a, a trainer over there, and I accepted. And uh, we had immediate success and. Uh, they weren't used to an American style of riding over there. Uh, but I, I became sort of a, a major time celebrity in, in a short period of time where uh, we really couldn't, we really couldn't go out and about myself and, and uh, Ron Anderson. Uh, uh, if we went to the mall or somewhere, I, I was just uh, overwhelmed, swamped. Um, they actually, we got to the point where uh, I could go to uh, a movie theater that they would uh, basically do a screening for me after they were closed. And, and the same thing for the malls, if I needed to do some shopping or, or something like that, we would, we would go in the middle of the night and, and were able to, to do that. But it was, uh, I, I can't imagine, imagine uh, the Michael Jordans and uh, LeBron James's, uh, Tiger Woods uh, here in America. Uh, to me, it's a blessing that that I live here in in uh, sort of uh, Los Angeles, and and uh, I can walk by pretty much anyone. And and uh, they, it's it, when people notice me, oh, you're the guy in Sea Biscuit. Uh, they don't know that I'm the guy right. that won three uh, three Kentucky Derbies. They're oh, you're the guy in Sea Biscuit. So, right. But um, it, it's it's uh, sort of nice. Um, to not have not have that notoriety that, that that I did when I was living in Hong Kong, and I'm not I'm not uh, 
saying that, that I didn't enjoy it, uh, my time over there, because I did. We had great success, but uh, it was it was a little overwhelming for, for the kid from uh, from Idaho. Well, the kid from Idaho became uh, very much uh, uh, entwined with Tinseltown in a whole different way. You just mentioned Seabiscuit, and it wasn't exactly a, a straight path, if you will, uh, to the role and to the opportunity to play uh, George Wolf, who was uh, clearly somebody that you knew about, uh, you, and uh, we got into a situation we'll mention just a moment about life imitating art, but just the the whole experience of how really the movie came to you, and then you embraced the opportunity. I don't know how many cause lights it took for that, but at first you weren't exactly crazy about the idea of being part of that movie. No, I I was uh, I was in the top uh, two or three. Uh, money-winning riders for the, you know, past several years. And it was Santa Anita Derby Day. And and I was riding one of the favorites in the Derby. And I thought I was going to win seven races that day. And and uh, I'd heard that uh, they were going to make this movie Seabiscuit. Now, I, I'm not a person that reads uh, a lot of books. I only read if it's horse racing or, or other sports uh, that, that really catches my eye. And and uh, I read uh, I read Sea Biscuit uh, on a red eye flight to New York um, to ride a race, and and I couldn't put the book down. I read half the book and and uh, slept when I got to the jocks room, rode my race, got back on another flight back to Los Angeles, finished the book, and couldn't put it down. And uh, I thought, now this this paints a picture right here. And I heard they were making a movie about Sea Biscuit and. Chris McCarron, he was a, a technical advisor as well as uh, playing Charlie Kurtzinger, uh, the the jockey of War Admiral. And um, my son's calling in, by the way. I, I'm just going to have to decline this, son. I'll call you later. Okay. Right. Uh, sorry about that. Okay. Um, so um, he comes up with this guy this Hollywood guy and, and introduces me and he said, this is, uh, this is Gary Ross. Uh, he's going to be directing Seabiscuit and I just wanted to introduce you, Gary. And I said, yeah, nice to meet you. I was in getting a cup of coffee out of the, uh, Jockstrom kitchen. And, and, uh, that was it. I walked away and, um, I evidently, uh, he goes, Gary Ross says, who is that? Who is that guy? And uh, Gary Stevens, one of the top writers in, in the United States. And, and uh, anyway, I had a bad day. I, I think I ran four seconds, didn't win a race or anything. And, and I came back and into the jocks room and uh, got undressed, put my bathrobe on. And I'm headed to the shower and I cracked open a Coors Light uh, on the way to the shower. <laughs> and just going to have a quiet one. And, and uh, Gary Ross comes up to me and he says, hey, he says, uh, what about you uh, being in this movie, Seabiscuit? <laughs> and... I said, buddy, you don't have enough money and I don't have enough time. And I walked <laughs> off and, uh, I have a good friend that was, he's in, in, the, uh, uh, entertainment in, industry as an agent and, and manager. And uh, I'd ridden for him for a lot of years and his name is Ed Goldstone. And Ed called me up and he says, Hey, did, did you meet a guy named Gary Ross? And I said, yeah, I met him. I said, he's typical Hollywood. I said, he said, well, he asked you about uh, a part in this movie. And I said, no, I think he wants me to be an extra. 
I said, I, I'm making a good living. I don't, I don't need to. And he said, no. He said, they, they're uh, talking about you playing George Wolf. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah. And I said, well, I said, it's a great book that they're just going to uh, screw up in a movie. There's no way they can emulate what, ah, oh, they've got this huge budget and they've got these gyro cam uh, cameras. They're going to do this and that. And I said, nah, Ed, I, no, I'm not interested. So a month later, I'm at the Derby. Uh, it was Oaks night, actually. I'd driven the Kentucky Oaks and, and uh, Ed was there with me, Goldstone. And he said, uh, Gary Ross, Kathy Kennedy, and Frank Marshall uh, want to have dinner with you on Oaks night. I said, okay. And uh, I, I'm not, I mean, I watch movies, but I don't know any of the players and in, in at the high level, I didn't know who Frank Marshall or Kathy, uh, Kathy Kennedy were. <laughs> and uh, so we sat down and, and uh, we had a, we had a, a glass of wine and they told me what they were going to do, how they were going to do it, how they were going to shoot these uh, scenes. And uh, we shook hands and, and I said, I'll do it. Uh, I had to take, almost a year off uh, from writing uh, for the filming and production, pre-production of uh, uh, openings in Europe and, and all around. And um, it's one of the, one of the best things that, that I ever did in my life. It was a great experience. I worked for some great people, worked with some great people, the best that there are at, at, uh, in their industry. Uh, I felt like an outsider coming in and they made me family. And I actually, uh, I met my wife, Angie, on the, on the film. Yeah. Uh, at, at, uh, and uh, we've, been, we've been married now for 16 years. We've been together for 21 years. And uh, we've got a beautiful 11-year-old daughter named Maddie, who's probably more famous than, than I am. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it was a great run for, for all of us. I'll just say that. No, it, it, indeed the case. And I just wonder if George Ross knew going in uh, that he, you know, if he knew his audience, in this case, you being the audience, here's a guy who had his 25th birthday party in, in uh, Wolf's old apartment above the Derby. I don't know if he knew that maybe <laughs> <laughs> going into it. Yeah. I, 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 well, Student the, of George the, Wolf that you uh, were, you know? Yeah. The, the, the first time I was ever in uh, the Derby restaurant, which was uh, – uh, opened by George Wolf uh, in the 30s and, and is uh, still a mainstay steakhouse in Arcadia, about uh, a mile from Santa Anita Racecourse. Uh, I sat in there on uh, that trip. I told you uh, and, and the listeners about uh, in uh, 1980 when I traveled to Southern California. Uh, the first place I was taking a dinner by Chuck Telefero uh, was to the Derby restaurant and there was a painting on, painting on the wall. And, and over the years, I became very close friends with uh, the owner, uh, uh, Sterniolo. And um, we, we had many a night up in George's apartment, which is uh, above the restaurant. It's, it's on the second story. And uh, George's, uh, there was a safe in there and, and George's, uh, actual apprentice certificate uh, was in there with all of his apprentice wins marked on the back of it and and certain um, certain personal items uh, that were were his and uh, the Derby restaurant every employee all the waitresses the cooks everybody there swear they will not 
be by themselves late at night. The cleaning people, no one, because George, George's uh, ghost is in the Derby restaurant. He moves <laughs> pictures, he moves things, and and uh, like these people turn white when they're telling you the story. I said, no, George, they, they, George is here, and uh, he's not a mean ghost, but he like he's a practical joker, and uh, so I, I knew a lot about George Wolf uh, prior to. Uh, really studying uh, about him uh, prior to playing him in, in the film. The Iceman, George Wolf, uh, swashbuckling figure, lived fast, died young at 35, uh, falling from a horse uh, at Santa Anita. And uh, I think at this point, Gary, there might be a medical wing at uh, what is it, Acadia Hospital that might be named for you. Uh, we're, we're certainly not going to get into this. would be a medical journal if we get into all the injuries, but the one story that you got to relate is life almost, almost imitated art with the, the horrific injury that you had in 2003 at the, at the Arlington, at the Arlington million. Yeah. You're not kidding. I, I, uh, you know, we just finished up with the movie and, and, and Seabiscuit was rolling and, and, uh, you know, we all knew when we were filming that it was something very special. And then, uh, that particular day at Arlington, when I was on storming, storming home from my good friend Neil Drysdale again, uh, he had a lot of quirky horses. Uh, I, I called Neil quirky, and I, I say that with all all respect and, and in a fun-loving way. Um, he thinks I'm quirky too. So anyway, <laughs> storming home, he was a horse that uh, when he got left on his own, he was he was easily preoccupied and. Uh, he was a horse that, that did not like uh, the whip. You couldn't hit him. If you hit him, he would just stop running. Mm-hmm. And he had he had dropped a lot of riders in the morning, and me not being one of them. And that particular day, a lot like uh, Point Given in the uh, in the Breeders' Cup or in the or, or Silver Charm in 1997 in the Belmont Stakes. Uh, I was left on the lead a 16th of a mile out and I knew it was way too early to be in front with him. And there was a, a, a photographer that was stood in a place that he shouldn't have been standing uh, that day. And, and he caught sight of him and yeah, it was ugly. And uh, I, I remember uh, laying out on the racetrack and, and I'd never felt pain. Like I, I felt and my, my arm, one of my arms was numb and, and, uh, I had this horrible feeling, uh, feel in, in my chest. I couldn't get my air. And thank God they had paramedics there. Uh, they, they gave me some morphine and uh, they were loading me in and into the ambulance after uh, four or five minutes. And, and there was this huge boo from the crowd. There were a lot of people there, uh, obviously, that day. And, and I heard the boo as they were putting me into the, the ambulance. And, and uh, I said, are they booing me? And one of the paramedics, he says, not to make matters worse, but they just uh, disqualified you as well. And I oh. said, well, they must think I'm dead. And I, I, <laughs> I started laughing. And it hurt so bad when I, when I laughed. Anyway, I had a punctured lung and I had uh, some uh, hairline fractures of uh, vertebrae and, and whatnot. But uh, I was just thinking, God, are you really? You played George Wolf, and now you're going to die like George Wolf, and that's what was Jeez. going through my head as oh, I was gosh. falling, and and I saw a hoof coming at my face, and I just got warm, and I said, "This is it. That's the end." Uh, and thank God, a, a trailing horse 
uh, kicked me, kicked my ankles and, and, uh, spun me around. And, uh, there's actually, a, <laughs> anybody wants to see it, they can go to YouTube and just, uh, they, they've got that spill in slow motion with, uh, uh, chariots of fire music, uh, playing in the background. And, and it says the horse was uninjured as for the jockey's condition. Don't ask. That's how, that's how the video on YouTube ends. So, uh, oh, thank God I'm here talking to you right now, but that's, that's as it, close as I ever came. And it's, uh, it was, it was a warm, peaceful feeling, but it was like, uh, man, I don't get to say goodbye to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, uh, once again, the injuries, the, the comebacks, couple of comebacks in your career and, um, uh, one race that we got to talk about, uh, from, uh, the, the end of your career, the, the Breeders' Cup Classic in 2013, back from retirement and a very special relationship you had with uh, Kathy uh, Ritfold, the, uh, the, the trainer. That's one that you, I'm sure you think about quite often. I'm sure now that you are officially retired now for a couple of years that you from, uh, from the actual uh, race game. Yeah, the, the, the training job that Kathy Ritfold uh, did with, uh, with Mucho Macho Man is, is second to none other of, of training feats of, of any trainer that I ever rode for. And, you know, when, when I had retired um, in 2005, I had just accepted that the, the one trophy that was missing on my mantle uh, that I most wanted other than a derby or anything else was the Breeders' Cup Classic. And I'd been second as favorite a couple of times. I, I had placings, a lot of placings in the classic, but I, I, I had finally just accepted, well, it wasn't meant to be. The racing gods say that Gary's not to win a Breeders' Cup Classic. And I got a phone call from my, my agent, Craig O'Brien. I was in New York. I was doing a, um, an interview in, in New York. And, and uh, I think I was doing a photo shoot, actually. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I get this phone call from Craig. I was stood outside of... Uh, uh, the music hall thing and and uh i said what's up craig and he says hey we just got a great phone call we picked up a, a really nice horse to ride in the awesome again a prep race for the the uh, breeders cup and i said yeah who's that and he said mucho macho man i go no way and he goes yeah <laughs> kathy ripple i went by and and talked to her and i just won uh the uh, kentucky cup uh classic at uh kentucky downs for Tom Proctor, and he said, yeah, I pulled up that race, and so you you need a Hall of Famer on this race, he said, so I pulled up that video of you riding uh, riding this horse, and and uh, she said, great, you got the mount, and uh, I so I told Kathy, I said, look, I said, I've, I've watched all this horse's races, and Mike Smith had been riding, and uh, uh, Mike was committed to ride another horse, and anyway, uh, I told Kathy, I, I said, Kathy and a fellow named uh, Finn Green, who was the racing manager for uh, the Reeves family, uh, Patty and Dean Reeves, the owners of Mucho Macho Man. And, and both uh, Finn and, and Kathy were standing there. And I said, I, I have an idea. I said, I've watched the races. And I said, I don't think this horse likes the whip. And Kathy got the, she grinned from ear to ear. Finn, he grinned ear to ear. And he said, He's already got it figured out, and the rest is history. Uh, what a race he ran that day, and uh, awesome again. Then he came back and repeated in the 
in the Breeders' Cup Classic, and, and it all worked out. And, and I finally got that trophy up on the wall uh, uh, thanks to the Reeves and, and Kathy and Finn and, and uh, Mucho Macho Man. Surge to victory in a uh, three-horse duel with uh, Mucho Macho Man there in, in 2013. And, and then the end, uh, 2016 at the, uh, the Breeders' Cup at Distab, age uh, 53 years young. And uh, once again, you mentioned Mike Smith and Songbird and you, uh, with Beholder and uh, uh, really kind of uh, gave the uh, the final note, uh, the final exclamation point to your career, Gary. Yeah, and uh, God bless B. Wayne Hughes and and um, uh, Richard Mandela. Uh, you know, when I picked up the mount on on uh, Beholder, uh, it was unexpected. Garrett Gomez, God rest his soul, uh, had been riding and and. Uh, Richard had, had given me a call and said, uh, you know, I, Garrett's got kind of gone missing and, and he said, the, the Phillies, I need a rider and you're the one. And uh, that was in 2013 as well. Uh, what a year that was. But uh, I picked her up and, and uh, you know, I was undefeated on her. And then I had to have a knee replacement. And I was out of action. And Mike Smith uh, had had picked the filly up and and won on her at Del Mar. And then mm -hmm. uh, she was scratched. She was scratched from the Breeders' Cup, and she was actually supposed to be sold. And because of her being scratched, Mr. Hughes decided to race her another year. So I had my knee replaced, and and I had had come back. And uh, I'm like, man, I. I don't know who's going to ride Beholder, uh, if it's going to be Mike or it's going to be me. And, and uh, I know it was a tough decision for, for Richard and Mr. Hughes to, to do, but I was the chosen one uh, to get them out back uh, after Mike had ridden her just the one time. And uh, it's very, very ironic because Mike winds up being the rider of, of Songbird and he couldn't have rode her anyway. He was going to run into a, a train wreck and, uh, trying to pick between the two of them, and um, so I, anyway, I got uh, I got the holder back, and and I'm very thankful for that. But uh, you know the the weeks leading up to that Breeders' Cup, uh, Mike and I we we always exchange uh, information with each other if we're not ra racing against each other, and we root for each other. And uh, you know I I talked about strategy with every horse that I was riding, but I didn't talk strategy with, uh, with Beholder and, and Mike and I, <laughs> right. uh, didn't either. And, and actually my, my daughter, Maddie, she was, uh, she was doing a, a special thing for NBC and it was called Maddie, Maddie scoop. And she, I didn't know that she'd gone over to Mike's house. Angie had taken her over there and actually interviewed Mike. Uh, and they sat down and uh, behind she, enemy lines, she says, she, she says they were sitting at, at this table, coffee table in between them. And she's got her legs crossed. And she says, so Mike, uh, what's your strategy going to be with, uh, with songbird? And he goes, really? What? He started laughing. He says, what's your dad's strategy going to be? And she says, well, that's not the question I asked you. She said, I asked you first. And anyway, it is really cute to watch, but uh, Mike, he just, he burst out laughing and he said, I'm not going to tell you what my strategy is going to be. Anyway, it was one of, it was one of the greatest, greatest races that, 
that I was ever involved in. Um, I think maybe the greatest of all time, uh, two, two uh, gallant fillies that, uh, well, one filly and one mare uh, mm. that gave their all that day. And, and when I say this, I say it uh, very sincerely. I, I wish there wouldn't have been a loser that day. I mean, it was yep. it was centimeters that separated the two of us, and nothing would have made me happier uh, than than had it been a dead heat because both both uh, both of them laid everything out that day and gave it everything they had. I know Mike gave everything he had, and I know I gave everything that I had. And uh, I came back in to the the jocks room after. Uh, they'd take him pictures and, and I took an extra champagne glass back in the jocks room with me. And, uh, <laughs> I went over to Mike's uh, locker and, uh, we toasted and I signed my glass. He signed his. Gosh. Uh, I'm sorry, but, uh, it's okay, Gary. Just, uh, a special moment. I um, I wish there wouldn't have been a loser. No, oh, and there, there really wasn't. They were no, both uh, no. they were both winners that day. No, and it, and uh, the people the people got to see what they came for in it, that race. In, in, indeed, for that level of competition, and uh, you, you've seen the game, you know, through uh, a couple of retirements, a couple of comebacks. Uh, uh, you know, jockey agent uh, time that you spent in horse training, etc. Now your life is really uh, wrapped up in in broadcasting with with Fox Sports and uh, and uh, some other uh, the NRA Live and, and NYRA Live that you work for. What, what about uh, life today and uh, how you've been able to experience racing from this whole new perspective in your actual real retirement now uh, over the last few years where you've uh, adopted uh, a new persona. How, how is that for you, Gary, and how you've adapted to that in your life? Well, like everybody, uh, COVID-19 is, is uh, hmm. this virus and uh, disease has had an effect on everybody's life uh, in drastic, drastic ways. Um, and I'm fortunate that, uh, you know, I've been able to, to do the Naira shows uh, for Fox uh, from my home all summer long covering uh, Saratoga and a couple shows from, from Belmont Park. Uh, but I'm, I'm managing horses and buying horses uh, mm -hmm. for a, a few clients. Uh, foremost, uh, Holly and Dave Wilson. Uh, we formed a, a partnership and, and we've got a, uh, quite a few two-year-olds that uh, been very active at, at the sales this year, and it's it's been difficult uh, because I haven't been able to fly uh, to the thing. So I'm putting a lot of trust in, in a lot of people that I've trusted uh, for a lot of years in, in their opinions and, and their eyes. They I've, I've got eyes in a lot of different places and uh, veterinarians that uh, I've dealt with for, for years. Um, that that have taken care of some of the best horses that I've I've ridden, uh, and I rely on uh, for veterinary exams prior to buying uh, and whatnot. But I, you know, I haven't been allowed over on the backside at Santa Anita. I, I can show up in the mornings and and I can watch them work out uh, over these uh, past couple of months uh, mm -hmm. since the horses have been back from Del Mar. And I got to say, I, Santa Anita is my, it, it's my backyard, man. That's been my home for a lot of years. And I enjoy going out in the mornings and, 
and uh, sending sending photos of, of the racehorses and uh, it's keeping me busy. Um, you know, I'm doing a, a couple of other uh, partnerships with uh, Gary Stevens Racing Club, and it's it's interesting. Uh, it's I have a passion for it, and I'm dealing with a, a lot of uh, a lot of old clients that I rode for over the years to have a lot of trust in me and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and a lot of new people that I've, I've met through my travels that want to be involved in the sport and hopefully give them a, a great experience. And that's, uh, I, I'm staying busy. I'm retired, but I'm not retired. If you know what I mean, it, oh, I'm it, retired it, from being a jockey. <laughs> that's right. Not, not from anything else related to the game. As we could see, you're still very much immersed in that. Uh, not, not surprisingly. And once again, as far as uh, COVID-19, we can only hope that uh, the Triple Crown in 2021, Gary, will be on a little bit more of a conventional track than the, uh, the, the very uh, the kind of the bizarro world that we were in. Up was down and down was up here in 2020 as it was with pretty much everything else. You know, we, we basically been the only, uh, the only show in town uh, until most recently with uh, Major League Baseball going through their, uh, their playoffs and, and uh, the uh, basketball championship already being decided at this time of the year and hockey right. that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all changed. But uh, I, I think, um, and when I say I, this is a thank you to, uh, to Naira, New York Racing Association, and Fox. Uh, Fox Sports. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we have been the number one rated uh, sports show, and and it, when we started this whole deal with Fox, uh, this partnership with Fox a couple of years ago, um, you know, we were on Fox too, and we were at the mercy of soccer, Major League Soccer, and everything else. Not anymore. We are we are on Fox One or the main Fox channel. Right. At the odd time, we show up on Fox too, but uh, our our viewership is is like crazy. The ratings are crazy that that they're getting right now, and it's thoroughbred horse racing. And we've been able to, uh, I think, showcase our sport to a whole new uh, viewership that yeah. have never engaged in the sport before, and it's high definition. And they've 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 exposed us in a in a beautiful way, and and uh, you know I. I commend them uh, for for what they've done for our sport at at a difficult time. And we've been, I get a lot of social media uh, responses just to thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You you make our life seem, or you guys, you, your whole team. uh, And and I should say along with that, you've got the choice of PBG too. I mean, we've been there front and center. We were the first sport uh, to get back in action and what they did at, at Santa Anita, we were the first sport where the jockeys were the first one, first athletes in in a bubble uh, with the with the village they built with the star wagons for the jockeys in uh, quarantine and and uh, not exposed to anybody except themselves. So uh, I commend the the, the job that uh, Santa Anita did and and Naira and being able to run at Saratoga this summer. Yeah, no fans, but. Uh, people may do uh they they had their own parties their own settings at their at their homes and it uh seems like it, it gave a little bit of normalcy to, to life during this time indeed well as, as a guy that was uh right in the middle the vortex of the golden age of racing when you know as, as you had uh, discussed uh, 
Santa Anita, you could get 30,000 people there on a Wednesday. You can only hope that, uh, that horse racing, uh, that you mentioned the ratings, the interest will be on the upswing on the other side of this pandemic. And for a guy, uh, you could have done worse than betting on Gary Stevens mounts, 29,442 starts, finished in the top three, 48% of the time, 5,187 wins. So 18% were winners. Just remarkable. Uh, a man of uncommon intelligence, cool amid the chaos, and uh, who also, similar to Mick Jagger, uh, told Roy Firestone in 1988, I'll be done by 30. How did that work out? For you win, Mick Jagger. I told that to Eddie Delahousie when I was about 27 years old. I said, I'm out of this game when I'm 30. When I hit, he said, you'll still be riding when you're 50. And by God, he was right. I, I even beat that by a little bit. Uh, yeah. Father yeah. time starts knocking, though, and, and injuries. And uh, when you break your neck, it's no joke. Uh, when, when you've got the issues about paralysis, possible paralysis, it's, it's time to hang it up. So uh, I, I appreciate the career I had and the people I rode for and the fans and, and everything. It was a great run. It, it, indeed. Uh, final word to Bob Baffert. One of those riders, and you can count them on one hand, who you don't even give instructions to. With the exception of the queen, Gary Stevens, thank you for uh, getting up and running for us here today on the games people play. You played well, my friend. Thank you. Bernie, thanks for having me, buddy. Gary Stevens, Hall of Fame jockey, icon of the sport of horse racing, the sport of kings, our uh, special guest here today on the games people play. I want to thank executive producer Andy Bernstein, the crew in Seattle, our West Coast crew. Gary's on the West Coast, also our West Coast crew with Todd and Key One. And uh, for the games people play, this is Bernie Corbett saying, play the game well. <laughs>